You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26ers, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. While growing up in South Jamaica, Queens, Borough President Adams showed an early interest in computers, but a negative encounter with the police at age 15 led him to a life of public service. Borough President Adams would go on to spend 22 years in law enforcement, retiring from the NYPD with the rank of captain. He served four terms in the New York State Senate, and once his current term as Brooklyn Borough President ends, he has his sights set on another office, the New York City Mayor's. Now we get into his candidacy and campaign, but we don't just talk career and politics. Borough President Adams is also a vegan and made the choice after being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. If you've ever blamed genetics for your poor health or the ailments that plague so much of our community, this is a crucial episode for you. So without further ado, please take a listen and I hope you enjoy. Borough President Adams, how are you? Quite well, quite well. Good to be here. Glad you're here. You know, good space, good energy. And, um, you know, we, we're caught up now in so much professionalism. But I know your brother had to know how to fight to protect you because <laughs> his brother was trying to hit on you. <laughs> the things that he says. Okay, so he just said on the show, we do these, like, duo episodes where we just kind of talk about what's going on behind the scenes. Right. And he just said last week that he would still go to county if necessary. <laughs> so he's always talking about headbutts somebody. I, I don't know. I, you know. That's how, that's how I about my sister. I, I, my oldest sister, Sandra, she's my heart. Mm-hmm. She taught me how to dance, how to, you know, tie tie. You know, it was a different era back then. Yes. And I just love her to death. You know, six of us and she was the oldest. It was a different era. Mm-hmm. You know, where the oldest child had to take care of the whole family. Right. My mom and dad was out, you know, trying to eat a living. Well, really, mom was out trying to eat a living, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, I understand that energy. It's, you know, I'm six and a half years older, so, you know, that's my little brother still, right. mm-hmm. but he, he don't play. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> he does not play, and, and the men know it. That's for sure. Even by the way he looks and shakes the hand, they know. <laughs> I like that. I like exactly. That. So, let's get into your story. Yes. Let's Let's start. Mm-hmm. Who is Borough President Eric Adams? Uh, you know, that's a that's a powerful question mm-hmm. because, you know, I lived the last of uh, 30 plus years in the public life, mm-hmm. you know, back from the days of 100 Blacks in law enforcement, um, who care of uh, my law enforcement uh, time as elected official. But, you know, people believe and they try to interpret who you are through sound bites sure. and, and never really take the opportunity of understanding, you know, how did a person arrive at the location that they find themselves now. And the best way to describe me is through my mother. My mother has six children Mm -hmm. and she she loves them all, but she adores me. I'm like her son, (laughs) you know. Does everyone else know that? uh, (laughs) They they better get it. (laughs) And so mom, we grew up, we were born in Brownsville. Uh, 1218 Gates Avenue, where I spent the bulk of my life. And we le- we left Brooklyn a little later. And I'll never forget the day that mom was, uh, we, were, we used to play bidwiz in spades upstairs in this uh, four-story tenement building that we lived in. 
And it was just a rat infested. It was down the block from Broadway, right off of Gates Avenue and Broadway. And I used to think that that's the same Broadway where Sammy Davis Jr. You know, performed. <laughs> Little did I know. And so we were in this space and mom said to everyone that was in the room, it must have been around about eight or nine families. She said, you know, I'm going to take my son, my children to Queens. We're not living here. I'm not going to raise my, my babies in this violence. And everyone laughed at her in that room. And throughout the, the night, she was the butt of the jokes. Every time someone wins a hand, they would say, yeah, I guess we're going to Queens for Dot. And you know, it became the running joke. And I remember crying that day. And she said, baby, don't worry. You know, we're, we're going to have a house one day. Mm-hmm. And she would clean, she would clean other folks' homes and do iron, ironing for people. And, you know, we didn't have an iron with a cord. We used to have iron that you put mm-hmm. on the stove. And it was my job to make sure it wasn't too hot so that when she did the shirts. And a couple of years later, she was packing up my dad's beat-up jalopy. We were moving to Queens. And she shared with me uh, four years ago when I rebuilt her house for her. We were sitting down and just talking. She says, Eric, the day that I went to do the closing, the attorney for the bank was the attorney that I cleaned his house. Wow. And she said, I walked in and he saw me. He said, what are you doing here, Dot? And she said... this is my house. I'm the person that's purchased of it. After she did the closing, she went to his house to clean his house. And he told his wife, Doc bought a house. And when she finished cleaning that day, he fired her. Wow. He says, you know, who do you think you are <laughs> buying a house in Queens? And she, she told me, she said, Eric, I went in the subway and I cried and I yelled and I screamed as the tra- trains went by so no one would hear me. I dry my eyes. And then I decided I have six children, I have a house, I have to keep it. And I cannot remember one month as a child, not coming home from school, worrying that the marshals would be out there about to throw us out of that house, where she just constantly grind all the time, all the time. Thank God for the legal numbers back then, because mm-hmm. she'd get a hit every once in a while and be able to pay the mortgage, be able to hold them down. But she just she just grind all the time. And it wasn't that she was alone. We attended this small church. It was a small storefront church. I call it the Cheers Church. Everyone knew your name. Mm-hmm. Everyone's glad you came. They would go during the day. You'll go home, you'll eat, and then you'll come back at night. Oh, I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, but everyone knew in the church that the middle part, the Adams family never participated in because we didn't have the food. Mm-hmm. We just basically just eked out. And one night after the evening service, a car caravan of uh, women pulled up to our houses with boxes of groceries and they unloaded inside our house in the kitchen. And that night, when everyone was asleep, I went downstairs. I said, you know, I'm going to finally have real milk and not that darn powder milk. Yeah. You know that? And every item in there, the boxes were open. It was half a box of spaghetti, half a box of cornflakes, half a jar of mayonnaise, mayonnaise. So it wasn't groceries that were purchased for your family. They, they went into their own cupboards mm-hmm. and they took half of what they had and they gave it to our family. Wow. And I'll never forget that day as long as I live. And when I look at this conversation that people are having about folks who were our neighbors, but they have fallen on hard time and now they're homeless. And I hear people saying, we don't want them there. We don't want them here. You know, there by the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. That girl that we don't want, you know, in a shelter or 
near us. That was that little cute little girl that sat in the front row in your church. You know, that little boy that we don't want who's now 22, 24, 25. That was a little young man that was playing baseball with your son. You know, we are all going through hard times. And back then, we had a car caravan of women who were giving us half of what they have. Now we sit in church on Sunday talking about how uh, great God is. But on Monday, we said, we don't want them in here. Let me tell you something. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was here now, They'd be with the homeless. Right. And so that's the journey of how I got here, you know, of, you know, what always looking at turning pain into purpose. Mm -hmm. My brother and I were arrested at 15 and the police in the 103rd precinct, the same precinct that Sean Bell was shot and killed in. Uh, we did we, we we didn't fight the cops. We came up the school bus. They caught us. They locked us up, and they're sitting there joking with us, doing the paperwork, filling out the documents. And out of nowhere, they said, "You feel like a beatdown to each other." They took us down to the one the, the basement of the one hundred third precinct, and they just kept kicking us in our groin over and over again, over and over again. My brother and I never talked about it, you know. Years later, you know, but it was a black cop that stuck his head in the door and said, "That's enough." You know, he didn't. Re- Report them. He just stopped us, stopped them from beating us. And my brother left there saying, I want nothing to do with cops again. He hated cops after that. I left there with a different feeling of, you know what, we got to fight these guys. You know, we have to, people can't go through this, all that power and what they were doing. And there was just so much anger that came out of that. And I remember going to the counselor, part of our condition of a probation, we had to go to a counselor and in 40 projects in South Jamaica, Queens. And I remember going to the counselor and the counselor uh, told my brother, listen, I want you to come back next week so we can continue assisting you. And she looked at me and she said, you know what, I don't even want you to come back. Don't even bother coming back. So how old were you when this happened? Fifteen. Fifteen. Coming out the school bus, ganked by the cops. What what were the events that led up to this encounter? There was a very close friend of ours back then. When I was fifteen, I was running. I, I was running numbers, mm-hmm. and you know, I knew a lot of people. And you know, I was part of the Seven Crowns. I was a street gang, and we had this close friend named Mickey. She was a prostitute and go-go dancer. Yeah, yeah. Fifteen. <laughs> okay, wait, hold on. Fifteen, right, and you right. have a close friend named right. Mickey, Mickey, who's a prostitute and, and a, a go-go. go-go so she broke her leg. So, you know, you can't, you can't go-go with a broken leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could. It might be a little awkward, but you can you know? And Mickey, when she, her leg healed, her pimp told us, I don't want you around those kids anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we were a bunch of snot-nosed kids. We didn't know what we were doing. And so we had the keys to Mickey's house. And we went to her house and grabbed her TV and other items. And something's very significant about this. And she reported it. But the connectivity of my mother and I, you know, my mother's very spiritual. Mm-hmm. And she used to always talk to me in her sleep. And you know, I, I always thought this was the power of women anyway, because this is what I grew up in. And that day before we went, and broke into Mickey's house, my mother said, you know, leave the $50 alone. The reason they caught us was because of a $50 money order. Wow. (laughs) And so it just led into this whole feeling of, you know, how do we uh, not go back there? I said, you know what? This is not the life that I want. This is not what I want to live. And I saw mom that day when she had to come to the precinct and the cops laughed at her. They looked at her clothing and treated that way. But the bottom line is, 
is I put it on, I put placed it on that selling block and I was committed to say, you know, mom, I'm not going, that's not going to, going to happen to you again. So you hear these <clears throat> stories of, of kids who get caught up with a certain crowd, particularly in big cities, um, and have these experiences, but the pull is so strong from that that sense of community that they have, especially if the community is made up of people who look like them. Yes. Black men providing support, guidance. It may not be the right guidance, right. but right. guidance and feeling that sense of security and being valued and wanted. So you have, you're in a street gang and you have this experience. What do you think it was in you that knowing that I need to make a change? Like mm. What drove you to that conclusion at 15? At that point, you're not even, your frontal lobe mm. is not even fully developed. Mm. To be mm. able to make that rational of a decision and say, this is not really for me and I need to go in a different direction. Entry points. I think mm. that it's all about finding entry points. And the entry point um, for me was my mother. Mm -hmm. You know, I adored my mother and still do. You know, I just believe that she's an amazing person and the level of sacrifices. Mom used to leave late at night to go clean office spaces and I would watch her leave her footprints in the snow. And I wouldn't be able to sleep until the snow covered and covered over her footprints and she would come back. And when I realized how much I was hurting her and putting, placing her in embarrassing situations, you know, so it was not even so much about me. It was about, you know, what mom deserves more than this. Mm -hmm. You know, the journey she traveled from getting us out of uh, that building on Gates Avenue to making it to Queens, you know, as, as dilapidated and as old the house was, she gave us her best and she never stopped thrive, striving, you know, with all the arthritis, the, all the despair with her dad. There was never a time when she had men in and out of the house, never mm -hmm. saw her smoke, never saw her drink, always had a Bible in one hand and a cane in another hand, just constantly saying, I want the best for my, ch no, my children. And when, when the arrest was, you know, was a wake up call, I could have easily hit the snooze button, but I said, no, I got to get my ass up and I have to, this is a game changer for me. It's time to move forward. And it was really how much watching her, you know, hearing her voice in that precinct and hearing those cops saying, leave them, they would never be anything. And she said, I'm not giving up my sons. That's what it was. It was mom. And where was your father in all of it? <clears throat> he was, you know, men from the South, particularly the deep South, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, uh, they're broken in a lot of pieces. Mm -hmm. And dad was a beautiful human being and a terrible dad. You know, mm. the trauma of one or two generations away from slavery, um, watching some of the horrific things that took place, being treated as a second class citizen in a first class country, it impacted dad. And no one really uh, showed dad what manhood was about. Manhood uh, was really something that went with you know, how much drinking you can do, how many women you can have, uh, how fast you can live your life. And dad was really attracted to the streets. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's something sensuous about the streets of, of living that life. And I think he woke, woke up one day. And I, he said, I have six children. You know, everything I have is going to, you know, this family. My my youthfulness is fleeing. I still want to enjoy the life that I'm used to having. And it was challenging. So he would come in and out of life, in and out of life. And when I when he transitioned a few years ago, I remember spending time with him and sitting down talking. And he was just saying, Eric, mm -hmm. you know, I made a lot of mistakes and I wish I would have done things differently. 
But, you know, this is who I am and what I have done. And it was just part of the journey. And mom took what little he gave every once in a while and she made do. She made do in so many different ways. Um, so he was there and he was not there. And he was really uh, typical of the, the, the male figures that were represented in the households in the, in the community in South Jamaica, Queens, where I grew up. But I, I love the way you... You frame that in describing him because you you hear this story, right, about how men functioned in that era. They had family here, or family over there, or they drank and they brought whatever was left of their check, you know, home to the wife to, to manage or they just left. Right. You hear this story over and over yes. and over again. Yes. And that's it. But I haven't heard someone describe it and speak to the trauma that they're carrying right. that close to slavery. I think sometimes we forget. We really It do. has not been that long. Right. Um, and I often say that it's a sign of maturity when you can recognize the brokenness in your parents mm, mm. and how that brokenness and unresolved trauma can affect their behavior towards doubt. you. It doesn't make it right, mm -hmm. but it allows you to have compassion in how you describe the errors that they may have no, so committed. True. So committed. True. That's well said. Well said. And, you know, there's so much science around this mm -hmm. now of how trauma can actually be is actually hereditary mm -hmm. where uh, the uh, epic epic genetics you know it's just really interesting how it how it took place because I know I'm part of my dad mm -hmm. you know although I have so much part of my mother and my ways and my behavior and the level of benevolence um, but I know I'm very much part of my dad I see I see in me, my dad all the time, mm -hmm. you know, and that early part of my life was straight dad. You yeah. know, it was straight, you know, I was attracted to the streets. I enjoyed being on the streets. I enjoyed playing everything from craps to CeeLo. It was an exciting <laughs> time. Every time I hit the number and I was able to throw on my little Kango and I I was my dad. Mm -hmm. If you were to say, you know, who, who Eric was during that time, that was my dad time, <laughs> you know, 16, I started to become my mother. Mm -hmm. I, I became a different human being, came more focused. Uh, but uh, clearly, the you know, the trauma of, you know, slavery, we're still living through it Absolutely. in so many different ways, so many different ways. And some of the people who look back and criticize of the actions of their parents or their fathers, they, they need to really take a real honest look at themselves. Because I sure. mean, I dropped the ball a lot, man. I am the poster child of mistakes, you know? But the name of the game is just keep pushing. I'm a grinder. I'm mm -hmm. a grind all the time. <laughs> you know, Nipsey is right. Grinding all the time. <laughs> oh, this, this I, I can already, I'm going to be watching your progression over the next couple of years, because um, this is going to be good. This is going to be, this, the sound bites are going to be very good from this. We talk about everything behind the sound bites, but mm. some of your sound bites, they're going to be good. I can tell. Um, okay, but getting back to your story, mm. so you make the decision I got to make a new choice. Right. What does you setting yourself on the right path look like at 15, 16 mm -hmm. years old? Mm -hmm. I, you know, there was a real demon inside me. Mm -hmm. You know, the demasculation of being kicked in your groin. Right. You know, feeling as though, you know, you're not the man you think you are. You let them beat you this way. So there was a real demasculation. And every time I saw a police car, I relived it. Mm -hmm. Every time I looked at, sat down and looked at a police movie, I relived it. Which is PTSD, essentially. There you yeah. go. Mm -hmm. There you go. You know, and there, there were two moments in my life that I experienced PTSD in a real way. One was then, and the second was when I retired from the police department. Mm. And I didn't know how to really deal with that PTSD. 
and people don't respect PTSD, you know, right. because I remember when I used to hear uh, men and women of the military talk about PTSD, I was like, what are you guys talking about? And we really need to understand it. And that goes to some of the things that I'm doing in the city around uh, PTSD. But I was experiencing PTSD and I knew it was only until I met a, a man named G2AUC, Earl Campbell. He was my professor in college and he identified that, you know what, you're a broken young man. You know, I was at New York City College of Technology and he told me, he said, I want you to take off during the summer. I want you to read these books and I want you to go to these various sites and, and, and visit. And he became that moment in the in the movie X about Malcolm X yeah. and when Elijah first met. Uh, when Malcolm first met Elijah, that is the relationship I had with G2AUC. Mm -hmm. he, he saved my life by telling me, I want you to take all that anger that that, that that social worker told you about, you don't come back. I want you to take the anger. Every time you see a cop car, you grin your teeth. I want you to take all of that. And now you funnel that anger into courage and go about making change. Because if you live long enough, you're going to experience pain. The only question you have to ask yourself, how do you turn that pain into purpose? Mm -hmm. And so I was on a purposeful journey. I met Reverend Herbert Daughtry. I joined uh, the National Black United Front. We started organizing in March around, you know, police abuse, closing the Mount Sinai, Sinai Hospital, uh, fighting against Mayor Koch. And all of a sudden, the pain that I had was becoming purposeful. And then the day that Reverend Daughtry and G2A Wusi and Sam Penn, these are all giants, sat down with us, Sonny Carson, yeah. uh, sat down with us, 13 of us, and said, listen, uh, we're losing too many black men to violence. We need you to go inside the police department, the correction department, um, other police agencies, and fight from within. And I didn't want, I was a computer geek at the time. Mm. I was doing programming and I didn't want to do it, but I had so much respect for them that I took the police test and eventually became a police officer with one mission only. There was no way I was going to last a week because I was going in there. I was, I, was in, I was going in there, you know, we gonna, things going to jump off. <laughs> and, you know, a week turned into a year, <laughs> you know, and 22 years later, I'm there. But it was like, you know, I'm still here. You know, you guys right. still have me here the way I'm acting. And I, and I believe that if you are somewhere, still strive to be the best while you're there. Mm -hmm. So even if I was only going to be there a week before they fired me, I'm going to learn the game while I'm there. While I'm there. So I studied while I was there. And, you know, eventually became a sergeant um, for my first promotion. But I just still grind. I said, if I'm going to be here, my greatest leverage is to keep, is to get promoted. And that's what I did. And it was a very important part. And it was a very important part of my, of, of my career and my development. You know, I'm, I just really believe in my being that uh, the universe brings things in your life for your final journey. Absolutely. And you do the best you can until uh, your purpose is revealed, but move with the universe and where the universe is taking you. So I, I did not expect for you to say that you made the decision to go into the police academy, do all that, because this group of men that you revered said this is what needs to be done. That's not what I expected. <laughs> I expect you to say you had, you know, this epiphany about how you need to go in and change the system mm. um, and, and unilaterally made that decision. Mm. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you were wise enough to go into programming because we all know 
people who are in a computer program at the right time, right. they're doing all right. That's right. right. They so, eat, they're eating. Yeah, they, they are eating. So to know that you were training in that space and mm-hmm. then to not only make a decision to do something else, but to make a decision to go into a space that had brought uh, abuse to your life and a very traumatic experience mm. is, some would say, crazy. Right. Right. You know what? That's what Percy said. Percy Sutton used to say it all the time. He said, either you are crazy as hell or you know something that we all don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that. But I was planning on falling back on my computer skill when they fired me. So, you know, it's like, you know what? I'm going here now. Because the only way I was able to get the demon out was to go in mm-hmm. and to go in and make up for the loss of my manhood to go in and fight like a warrior inside there. And we were a beast. You know, people, many people don't really recall those years of when, you know, 100 Blacks in law enforcement. These are some hardcore NYCHA project Mm -hmm. dudes, man. (laughs) We were straight up. You know, I love those guys. Noel Leader, Mark Claxton. And the ancestor is wonderful because they will protect you. Mm -hmm. And so many times they tried to fire fire them and, you know, we were just able at the right time to do our thing. And we weren't strong and wrong. Because you couldn't hang out in the titty bar and then all of a sudden going to stand up and talk about, you know, you some big tech fighter. No, we had to be on time. We had to study. We had to, to, to be the representative of what black manhood is going to be in the agency that was about destroying black manhood. And we were at the right places, doing the right things, saying the right things. And those were some serious years. Giuliani. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the rest of these cats that were running around this city, they were hiding under their mother's skirts. When Giuliani was mad. Don't let them kid you. <laughs> you know that? You know, and they, when, when we, we had one sister, she was a strong sister. She was fired from the department because we went and testified with her and uh, we hid her, her identity. She was part of a unit called Street Crime. They were horrific and they were just straight up stopping blacks, searching them, locking up for any reason. And this sister was part of the unit and she came out and testified. And when she testified, they fired her. So we sued to get her job back. And then during a lawsuit, it came out that they had me on surveil- under surveillance for years. Re- years? Right, right. When she started, when she testified, mm. they said, how did you know who she was if she was covered up? And they had to acknowledge we knew who she was because we were following Eric Adams. They had me, the police department had me on the surveillance. And out of that, we started to discover what they were doing, how they were targeting us as an organization. But even with all of their uh, abilities and strength, they couldn't take us down. All of my guys retired with their pension intact, promotions. All of them did well. No matter what they were trying to do, we were able to survive. And it wasn't because we were all that good. We were we were able to survive because I still believe our ancestors are in our midst. And if we be the men that they want us to be, they're going to make sure that we are protected. There's a covenant around us, and we could just move in a very dignified confident manner because our ancestors will be there for us all the time. I want to unpack that a little bit because when you spoke to your experience as a 15-year-old boy and locked in that room and then this black cop comes in and says, that's enough. And that was the end of it. That is what I think civilians, what we what we view black cops as. Not all, mm-hmm. but many that is shrouded in secrecy. And there's a code of ethics amongst that brotherhood of law enforcement where you don't sell your fellow cops. You don't sell them out. You don't report them. You don't challenge what what they're doing. Um, so 
to, to make a decision to go into that, knowing what you had witnessed and sort of how things work, these unspoken rules. And we've seen in the, in the, in the press what happens when a cop speaks out, right. what, what happens to them. Um, so when you when you say stand up with dignity, you know, pr- protected by the ancestors, all those all those things, I understand that. But what does that look like on a tactical level within an organization and a regime that is built upon protection of each other, white or black, and upholding that unspoken code? And that's a great question because it is a regime that's built on protecting of each other, but it's not white or black. Mm -hmm. It's policing in America is as racist as apple pie and Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. The isms exist. I don't care if it's racism, homophobia, behavior, sexism, uh, anti-Semitism. That is what policing is in America. And if you go in believing because you put on that blue uniform, they're not going to acknowledge your black skin. You're setting yourself up up for failure. That's and good. many have set themselves up for failure. They mm-hmm. thought that, hey, I'm going to become a police officer. I'm, I'm going to buy a boat. I'm going to go live on Long Island. I'm going to mm-hmm. live the life. We're going to play cards with each other. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be one of the guys. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just not the reality. You know, you are still the black cop, period. And you see it every day. You could just look at Desmond Robinson, who was shot and killed. I mean, shot, uh, shot at, uh, was it killed, but shot. Uh, Durant Pinnell, yeah. he was shot. The, the history of blacks in police agencies who were shot, who was falsely accused of things, who lost their jobs. There's a rich history um, that Roger Abel, who's no longer with us now, wrote a book about to show the history of what it is to be a man and woman uh, in, in, in the police uniform in New York City in particular, but in general in America. There's a, there's a notorious history and we never accept it. Even now, there's a lack of, of acceptance to people of color of being part of the law enforcement community. So how did you navigate that lack of acceptance and all the isms that infiltrate this space and rise to the rank of captain? Grinding, grinding. You know, I, I, I am. I was in, in, in high school and throughout my years in school, uh, up until college, I was a solid D student. Mm-hmm. You know, those are my good years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, but it wasn't until the transformation and once I got in, in, in college, it was dean list every year. And that's why it's so important that um, part of this game is more mental than physical. Mm-hmm. And when you have these figures in your life like G2, G2 opened inside me that you're more than what you think you are, Eric. And when I was able to explore behind beyond those limited understanding of what Black manhood was, I no longer saw uh, that examination as a test to know biology or uh, algebra. I saw it as a test of who are you as a black man? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not just a conversation. Hey, I got a dashiki or no, if you are who you say you are as a black man, you should be excelling no, no matter where you go. And so when I came into the police department, I came in with that understanding. Now, I didn't go up to the other ranks because of that. I went up to the other ranks because of Bill Lynch. Bill Lynch was the one that told me to go to the next ranks. When I wanted, when I, when I spoke with him and told him I wanted to be the mayor one day after David Dinkins, Bill Lynch gave me straight orders. He said, you have an associate's degree. You, you need to go back and get your bachelor's. I went back and got my master's. He says, you are a sergeant. You need to become at least a lieutenant. Instead, I went even further and became a captain. He told me you need to be a state legislator and then become the bar president. I became the state senator and then I became the first African-American bar president. So 
he gave me marching orders. He said, if you want to go to the next level, here's what you need to get there. And I followed his direction. So I'm a, I'm a big believer. You need to look at what are your goals and now you need to do what it takes to get there. Stop whining about why you can't or why you someone got in the way. And when I was in China a couple of years ago, I met with some of the top dignitaries. They have a saying there. I don't care if you're a black cat or a white cat, you still have to catch the mouse. I said, you don't have the mouse, you starve. <laughs> you know that? To get, get it all out of your head about, you know, anything else. And so that was my driven force. You're here, Eric. Bill told you what you needed to do. Now let's get it done. It took me 14 years to get my master's going at night. My wow. son was born. Two classes, some one classes. Had to pay on my own. So it was a grind. Studied, you know, throughout the night. You know, some cats are smart enough to study for two hours and comprehend the information. It's going to take me eight hours to do it. I'm going to do the eight hours. We had to memorize the penal law, memorize mm -hmm. the criminal procedure law, memorize several volumes of information to excel. Being a captain in the police department is one of the most difficult promotional exams you can take. And to get there, that's why there's a high level of respect that comes with it because it's a serious accomplishment. And I didn't do it because I was the smartest guy in the room. I did it because I was the most dedicated. I'm not going to beat you with brilliance. I'm going to beat you with endurance. There's a, a Will Smith quote from a few years ago where he basically says that. He says, you know, I'm not, I may not be the best actor, but when the other guy's sleeping, I'm working. The other guy's eating, I'm working. The other, I'm still in you there. Know, and, and there's something to be said for that. And, yes. and I think sometimes that's lost on the public image. Like yes. people see what you've been able to do and they're going to, you know, they may think if they don't know your story, oh, he's a good old boy. You know, he he knows how to, to hobnob and, and right. shuck and jive or right. what have you. And he he played the role that allows him to to really fly up the ladder, not realizing that it took 14 years just to get a master's degree, right? And the, and having a, a young son and all, and all right, that great right, stuff. Right. Um, and also what I appreciate about you is there's a level of authenticity that shines through. Mm, mm. Even working with, working having worked within a system that is not uh, compassionate towards us, mm, uh, mm. is downright prejudiced towards us and mm -hmm. look to hold, hold us back and, right, and right. provide obstacles for our own success. The fact that you've been able to not only accomplish these things, but be exactly who you are, mm, speaks mm. volumes. And, and, you know, and it's about being real to what we say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I take a lot of heat because, you know, I'm real about this. This is not I'm going through the motion. And so sometimes uh, people of color, when they just read a soundbite, they have a tendency to uh, not fully understand the depth of what I am communicating to my people because mm -hmm. this is our moment. And like when I talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, Black lives must matter when 11 people are shot in Brownsville as much as it matters when uh, uh, Eric Gardner is killed. Mm -hmm. We just can't say Black lives matter when the police shoots a person of color, but we don't say it when violence is in our community. A mother doesn't receive condolences if she said, listen, good news, your son was not killed by a cop, he was killed by a gangbanger. She's not all of a sudden going to cry any less. You know, the, the, the woman who lost her son in Brownsville, that was her second son that she lost in a four-year four period. You know, Pantaleo didn't kill him. Also, let's go after the cats in the blue police uniform that, that are violent to our community. But we got to deal with the cats in blue jeans also who are just straight up causing violence in our community. And we need to be consistent with our outrage about protecting our people. 
and I'm real about that. And I'm authentically deep on, I don't want my sister being harmed by anyone. And sometimes people look at it and because I'm not uh, speaking, you know, let's kill all the popo, you know, you know, and, and, you know, let's just uh, forget about the violence that's taking place, you know, elsewhere. I just can't do that. That is not who I am. And that's not who I'm, I'm going to pretend to be, you know, innocent people should not be the victim of violence by anyone. And that is where I view my life through that prison. The trauma of losing a loved one through violence is real. And that is how I view my life. And sometimes people take it over with, you know, you pro-police. No, I'm pro-life. People have a right to live. And people will hear this, you know, just to be quite frank, because mm-hmm. there is a people have a problem when you start talking about what about what's happening in Brownsville, et cetera. They think that it is or they see it as a diversion, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the uh, the counter arguments that people put out there is um, if, you know, if it were a white person that was killed, nobody would ever say, what about white on white crime? Right. If a white person was killed by a uh, a black person. Nobody ever says, well, you worried about us. What about your own who kill each other or have semi-automatic weapons, et cetera? Right. What do you say to those folks who are going to have a problem with what, with what you just recounted? Yeah. I respect that. And if, and if, if I didn't have the legacy mm-hmm. that I have of fighting those racist cops, you know, Diallo's mother knows me. Mm-hmm. I'm not a stranger to her. I was with that family. Uh, Louima's family and Johnny, late jo- Johnny Cochran, they know me. You know, Zongo's family, they know me. Eric Gardner's family, they know me. So if one person is merely saying, if a person is merely saying, well, you know what, we commit uh, black on black on black crime. Is, I don't even believe in that term, black on black mm-hmm. crime. I think crime is crime. It doesn't matter. I would be just as outraged, outraged if a white person went in, because we don't know if it was black or white that mm-hmm. shot 11 people in Brownsville. So it's not even about black on black crime. It's violence. And if a white person went into Brownsville and shoot it, I'm going to be just as outraged outraged if a black person did it. And so I'm not saying that, but what about what we're doing to each other? No, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, let's be consistent. That's a powerful term to say um, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. That's a, that, I believe that with my whole heart that Black Lives Matter. We matter and we should not be treated with a level of violence. White folks can, should not be uh, saturating our communities with guns while babies are picking up these guns and creating violence. You know, we shouldn't be having our communities saturated with drugs. You know, but the reality reality is, if we just say we don't want violence in our community, because if we do it right, if black men are doing it right, we don't need police in our community. If we if we stand up, we can say to the to the 6th, 7th precinct, the 73rd precinct, you don't have to come here. We got this. You know, if there's a dispute in our community, we'll handle it. You know, the A.T. Mitchells over in East New, New, East New York, Anthony Newell over in Brownsville, Erica Ford over in South Jamaica, Queens, they're doing all of this violent interrupters program. And these are all people I know personally who are doing the program because they too understand that you can't lose a black life. If we stop all the police shooting, but we're still having violence in our community, then what do we succeed at? You know, and that is the energy where I'm coming from. So I'm not saying that, okay, but what are we, what are we doing about each other? I don't subscribe to that theory. Mm -hmm. I'm saying black folks should not be dying to violence. Do you think Pantaleo deserves to be fired? Yes, yes, long over two. Five years, it, it took too long. And, and hiding behind this conversation, we were waiting for the feds. There was no rule that stated we had to we had to w- wait for the feds. He should have been fired immediately. Anytime you take the life of an innocent person and you're a police officer, in my belief, you no longer 
have the abilities or qualities that it takes to have the power to take life and take freedom. He should have been fired long before now. It should not have taken uh, this long. It's an indictment on the entire police department when you cannot subdue or resolve a conflict of someone doing a minor infraction. He was selling Lucy's. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't lose your life because you're selling Lucy's. But see what happens in America and in New York City, you leave the precinct with a toolbox full of tools on resolving issues. And when you go to communities of color, you take out the hammer only, not all the other tools in the tools Absolutely. Box. You don't want to engage in a conversation. You, I've been at many incidents that I rolled up on and my cops would be there and I'm saying things again. He did. And I'll say, listen, fall back, gosh, I can get in your car. Get in your car. You know, I got this. You know, wait, listen, Lou, listen, Captain, you know, this is going to get heated. No, it's not. Because it's all about a conversation. <laughs> you know, if you don't, if you don't have the ability to communicate, which many people don't have, everyone believes communication is, I have to wait for you to finish the sentence so I can prove how wrong you are. How about seeking to understand and then being understood? How about just falling back and just say, I'm going to let this person his, his moment to vent. We don't know what the person went to before he started interacting um, with the cop. We don't know what that uniform represents to him and the anger um, that, he, he, that he may have at the time. And so the ability to communicate, they didn't go to Eric and, Eric Garner and say, listen, man, we're going to give you a summons. You're going in, whatever. Have that real conversation. Because he wasn't fighting. He was passively resisting. Mm-hmm. That's a different conversation. So, yes, Pandaleo should be fired. He should have been fired long ago. And what can be done? Is there a way to change this pervasive inclination to pull out the hammer when you see somebody that looks like us? Yes. You, you must have real uh, training in the police academy. You must have a real way of, of identifying a person who has racial uh, tendencies and really don't possess the ability to be a police officer. Too many people are in the police department that should not be there. You must have a real way of ridding agencies of those who have a propensity towards violence. We don't do that. If anything, we protect them. Mm-hmm. If we had real systems that a person have a lot high level of CCRBs, every time someone is arrested by the person, they have to have a hospital run. Uh, a person receive a high number of complaints. And cops know who are the bad cops, trust me. They know that, listen, I don't want to go on a job with this guy because this, this guy don't know how to talk to people. He escalate every situation. Get you. We need to really identify who shouldn't be a cop and get them outside the department at a faster rate and not at a slower rate. And that is the problem. How did the Diallo cops last that long after shooting Amadou Diallo 44 times, at him 44 times? Why were they still there? You know, case after case, you see police officers who display a high level of violence are remaining in, in the department. That erodes trust, that erodes respect, and that says that we, we, we don't take it serious that a person use uh, unnecessary force on an individual. And that is how you change. You have to change. We have to change the culture of policing because it was born out of racism and it is going to continue to thrive on the roots of its birth until we cut down the tree and plant a new tree and a new methodology of policing. Which brings me to the current political climate. Let's start on the local level. Um, I think when de Blasio popped up, People saw this man with his black wife (laughs) and the son uh, with the Afro and became enamored, in a sense, about what they thought it was going to be and what he was going to fight for. And they're now disillusioned Um, and and looking to the next. I, I believe that to be true. You're looking to be the next. 
and, and for a real way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I want to be mayor not because I need to be mayor. Mm-hmm. I've had a great career. Uh, I made my legacy, and I'm still making a legacy in the next uh, two years as ball president and some exciting things that we're doing that are really game changers, not only in America, but across the globe. But I learned in the mid, uh, mid-90s, you know, as I said, I was a com- computer programmer, and we implemented a program. I, w- I was part of the team that wrote the first online, real-time crime-fighting apparatus. This mm-hmm. was never heard of before. We used something called ComStat. I wrote, the, wrote um, part of the program when I was in the transit police. That's why I started my policing career. And the first year, crime went down 30-something percent. Then we moved to the New York City Police Department. We scaled it up. And we were having 2,000 homicides a year. East New York was called the murder capital of the country. And we scaled up the program. Within uh, the first year, we went down 400 homicides. 25 years later, uh, the city has been safe. Some problems, some kinks in, yeah. in the applications of policing. We had the Diallos along the way and the other cases along the way. But for the most part, um, families grew in this city and in, in this borough because of safety. Uh, property values went up. Uh, people were able to open their restaurants and life improves. Uh, many of our young people were able to exist in a safe environment. That's very important. The prerequisite to prosperity is public safety. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a believer in that. And so uh, the person who started this whole march towards safety was a guy named Jack Maple. He was the one that came to me and shared with me, Eric, we can make our city safe. And people laughed at him when he said it. They said, you must be smoking that crack that they're selling on the street. Crime is crime. And he said no. And he put in place this model that is still in existence today of making cities safe. People came from all over the country and watched. He didn't only crack the code on crime. He cracked the code on why this city is failing and why cities are failing all across America. It's because of our agencies. If your agency is not carrying out its primary role, it is not only going to impact its primary mission, it's going to impact the mission of the other agencies involved. So what we learned in policing, because police was dysfunctional, not only were were people not being safe, but we also impacted the economics of the city. Back in uh, 1991, when we had 2,000 homicides a year, we only had uh, 29 million tourists with $10 billion in economic revenue. When 2018, when the city became safe, we had 65 million tourists with $44 billion in economic revenue. Safety was not only a aspect of keeping people alive, but it was an economic stimulus package. That is the same thing with other agencies in the city. In the big cities in America, and particularly here, our agencies do two things. They fail their crises to, to address their crises. They actually create crises. Then they create crises for other agencies. Just look at the Department of Education. The Department of Education create two crises in the city that people don't look at. Actually, three. Number one, they don't they don't educate our children, even with a $27 billion budget. Mm-hmm. But they do something else. They create the health crisis and they create the Rikers crisis. 80% of the men and women on Rikers Island don't have a high school diploma or equivalency diploma. One third of the children between the ages of 18 to 21 read below a fifth grade reading level. 50% of them have a learning disability. Check out this number. 30% of them are dyslexic. Wow. If we would have solved the problem upstream, 
in school, we wouldn't have a conversation about closing Rikers the building. Let's close the darn pipeline that feeds Rikers. Mm -hmm. Let's identify those with dyslexic so they don't think they're dumb and they hang out on street corners with gangs and selling drugs and using guns. Let's give those that have learning disability the support that they need so they can stay in school. Let's make sure that people have not only high school diplomas, but CTE program, learn how to be carpenters, plumbers, electricians, and technology that we're seeing every day that's booming in the city. Like I'm, when I'm doing at uh, the uh, Brooklyn Steam Center at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, teaching new tech jobs. But if we address the issue, we won't have the rikers or the crime issue that we have in certain areas. And look at how they create the health crisis. 75% of 12-year-olds have early signs of heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer in America, yet our 12-year-old babies have early signs of heart disease. So while the Department of Health fights to kill childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood asthma, the, the Department of Education, they're serving our children 960,000 meals a day that causes what? Childhood obesity, mm -hmm. childhood diabetes, childhood asthma. So as the mayor of the city of New York, if you stop your agencies from creating crises for their mission and the crises for other agencies, you can turn the city around. No one else sees that that's running for mayor. You know why? Because there's no one in the city that has ever been part of a cultural change of an institution to solve their primary mission that's running, that's running for mayor. If you ask yourself, which agency in this city is running correctly? You cannot take one. There's only mm -hmm. one agency in this city that's doing their primary job first of public safety, and that's the police department because of what Jack Maple started years, years ago. Do they have problems with not weeding out abusive officers? Yes. Do they have problems uh, with of being, uh, you know, violence, yes. But when you look at the primary mission of making the city safe, they have been successful at it. We live in a different city because of what Jack Maple did. We, every agency in this city can start functioning if we have the right systems in place and the right mission and make sure that their mission is not in conflict with the mission of the city and the mission of other agencies. People say, well, that just sounds so, so easy. No, it's not that easy. You have to change the culture of this city. And if we get it right here in New York, we're going to get it right across the entire country. Know why that's important? Because when you go across the country, it's the same demographic who is experiencing the failure and dysfunctionalities of cities, black and brown people. You go to Compton, you go to South Side of Chicago, you go to Liberty City in Miami, or you go to Brownsville. People eat off the dysfunctionality of our communities. So there's no urgency to fix these problems because people is a financial benefit that people in our communities are living the way they are living. Once I get it right here, we're going to duplicate this across the country. This is a pivotal, pivotal period for Black people. 2050, it is predicted that Black folks would have zero economic wealth right. in 2050. Black folks right now, we have the salaries of middle class Americans, but we have the wealth of the high school white dropout. Mm -hmm. And if we don't start building institutional wealth, New York City has a $92 billion budget. If we use those $92 billion to assist black and brown people to build institutional wealth, what does that mean? 
How about getting the contract of supplying Xerox paper to the Department of Education? It's hundreds of millions of dollars. How about having the cleaning supplies in health and hospitals? Selling the Band-Aids, you know? How about making sure that we are the, the captains, the first grade detectives, the principals? How about making sure the wealth of this city is focused and intentional about building wealth for everyone in this city and just not certain groups? This is a historical moment for the people of this city. And in order to do it, you have to be a person that's not afraid of cops. You have to be a person that's not afraid of politicians. You have to be a per person that's not afraid of lying on the floor or the 103rd precinct having his body abused. There'll be a person who have the technical experience and have the computer savvy to see the power of AI and see how do you run smart cities. There'll have to be a person that's willing to do this right. And no matter where you look, there's only one person that fits this. I should win because of one reason only. I'm so goddamn better than everybody that's running. You do have that, Muhammad <laughs> Ali. So, <laughs> So, so what do you say to your critics, uh, the, the people who are on the Internet as you serve as borough president, calling out uh, things like New York Islanders, right? The, the scenario with them possibly coming to Brooklyn and, and ending up in Nassau and sort of tracing back why they went to Nassau and accusing you of, of having people in your pockets and you're carrying water for the owners and making decisions. Uh, the owners of these properties, namely needing to get more opportunity and events to Nassau and saying that you're making decisions based on that, not based on what's best for your borough. What, what do you say to those people who are going to listen to everything you say here? So he's not a man of the people. He's a man of the corporation. Yeah. And I think that anytime you look at a person's armor. Mm -hmm. And I think there's two ways to have an armor. One, you bring it out for parades and it's going to be always shiny. Mm -hmm. in there. Then you bring it out because you're on the field of battle. When you bring it out on the field of battle, you look and you see the scars, the cuts, the bruises. It's no longer shiny, it's dirty because you've been grinding. And so when one looks at Eric Adams' career, his life, his armor, you're going to see all of these critiques and critics, and you're going to see all these bruises and torn. And then you look at those who only marched in parades, and you're going to talk about how great they are. I've been on the field of battle. Mm -hmm. And when you're on the field of battles, there are times people agree with you, there's times people disagree with you. But when their life is on the line and they're about to lose their life, they don't go to the person with that shiny armor. They go to that warrior. I'm a warrior. And I knew I made the right decision in the Islanders who decided in the middle of the night to sign a deal in uh, Long Island after we did all we could to bring, bring them here. And the writer of this story who swore several times, I'm going to do everything I can to dis destroy yes. Eric Adams and just to find reasons to tear him down, tear him down. One of the critiques he had, we have a restaurant called Woodlands mm -hmm. on 6th Avenue in Flatbush. That's a predominantly black professional establishment. You have black doctors, black attorneys, uh, black law enforcement yeah. who frequent the place. But because there's so many blacks there, all of the whites in the area, want, they want to come out and say, let's close the place down because we see blacks waiting online. Hey, white guy, I hear y'all talk about how great waiting online is for a restaurant. How you met Joey on the line. You know, so when you see the critiques, we need to dig into them and say, who's the person critiquing this rather? And it's coded language, oh, right? Oh, what? Bottomless mimosas. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's, that's like every brunch spot in New York. Um, but but it's, it's, it's shrouded in that kind yes, of language. You're, you're drawing a certain crowd. They're drinking, they're vomiting outside, et cetera. Right, right. right. And I told them, I, I, just to speak, speak of that, mm -hmm. your, your, your audience may not know, but there's a popular uh, place where Black folks like to go and socialize and mm -hmm. hang out called this restaurant. 
Rock called Woodland. And I had a meeting with the community there, with the Department of Environmental Protection and the police department. And I said, listen, if these guys are having crimes or noise coming that's above the decibel level, they have to close down. Yeah. DEP said no, they're within the decibel level. The police said no, there are no crimes that are coming from there. And so one of the patrons said, yeah, was someone vomit on my stoop? I said, did you pick it up and do an analysis and say the food came from Woodlands? Because <laughs> I know how they play. Mm-hmm. And so the writer of that, he, the person with some of the things that you're alluding to, the person wrote a piece that Eric has not been scrutinized enough, basically. Mm-hmm. And he looked through on what he disliked of, about me. And I got it. You know, you don't live the life that I live and expect everyone to roll out the red carpet carpet when you come. Yeah. But one thing for sure, put on a bulletproof vest for 22 years right. and I protected the children and families of the city and I protected the integrity of my people in the city. You can't do that and not be criticized. Mm-hmm. That's just not possible. I couldn't have it one way or the other. I knew that you're going to be scrutinized. I ran for state senate, open seat. Whole lot of people could have ran. Mm-hmm. When I got in the race, everyone got out of the race. When I ran for borough president, open seat. Everyone in the borough could have ran, 2.6 million people. When I got in the race, everyone got out of the race. There's a history with people saying, we know that brother. We're not running against that brother. That brother's going to do some good things for the borough. And when you do an analysis of what I have done for the borough, it's an amazing story that has yet to be completely written. So let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about the forward-looking piece of this. But before we do that, let's look to the past Mm -hmm. once more. And tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Probably when I was studying for a lieutenant, mm-hmm. I made a left turn off of off Atlantic, Atlantic Avenue and turned onto Classen Avenue. A person drove up in the inside of my car. And as soon as I saw that action, immediately I, I, I looked over to my left because it was strange. And that quick look I saw what looked like a nine millimeter handgun came up. The person called out my name and started shooting at my car. Mm-hmm. I was able to hit the gas fast enough that it didn't shoot my window. It shot out the back windows. I drove to the 88 precinct on the corner of DeKalb and Klassen, and I told the sergeant, you know, someone just shot out my car windows. They wanted to be dismissive of it. And I was in the middle of studying to become a lieutenant. Two things, two things is very important about that. And the, the, the exam was days away. But I was I was shook up. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming home that day and after it was reported in the news and there were about uh, 25 to 30 black women standing in front of my house, you know, praying. And I had to get up. And so the investigators that came to the house, they said, Eric, listen, you shook up. You should forget about taking the exam. You know, you should just relax and just put the exam behind you. And I said, no, man. <laughs> you know, these are the moments. <laughs> these are the moments. All I could hear was G2 saying, I'll use who you say you are. And I had to step outside the symptoms of fear and step into a place that, you know what, there's going to be moments like this. If Billie, Holl- Billie Holiday sings in Good Morning Heartache, she told Heartache at the end of the song, you might as well just come on in and sit down. Eric, if you want to be this cat that you said you're going to be, you better befriend the symptoms of fear because they're going to be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I just had to step out of being an ordinary guy and do something extraordinary. I passed that test. And that sergeant that was dismissive of me being shot at, I became the platoon commander in the 88th precinct, and he had to report to me. Wow. That's how the ancestors are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So 
one thing that may take people by surprise is that you're a vegan. <laughs> Plant-based diet? Yes, 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 yes. What, what are the events that led up to you making that choice? It's a great story, you know, and I just keep going back to mom. Mm -hmm. Mom was home one day. I was by seeing my mother out in Queens, and I saw her inject herself with insulin. Mm -hmm. And you know how you can see something? but never notice it until you really see it. I must, mom must have injected herself. God knows how many times she was, she was on insulin for seven years, diabetic for 15 years. Wow. And, but that time I saw it, she had this, she had this subtle grimace as she, as the needle went in, she never got used to it. And she just like had this look on her face. And I remember sitting in the driveway of her house. I said, God, I'm not a doctor. You know, mom is taking nine pills. I just want to do something for mommy. And you have to be careful what you ask for. God is not going to tweet you or Google you, but he's going to answer you. <laughs> and I was in Dubai and I had a serious pain in my stomach. For sure it was colon cancer because I, a friend of mine uh, just died from colon cancer and the system, symptoms were so, so similar. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I said, well, you know what, I'm, when I get back to the country, I'm going to go to the doctor. I had a colonoscopy, endoscopy. And he said, Eric, you have an ulcer. But he said, your real problem is your diabetes. Mm. He says, you're diabetic. Your A1C is a 17. And if you know anything about A1C, that, that's high. Yeah, he said, I'm, su I'm surprised you're not in a coma. I have, you cannot leave my office right now without insulin. And I have to put you on two medications and insulin right away. And it just didn't resonate with me. So I did something very scientific. I went to Google and Googled reversing diabetes. And all of this stuff came up. Now, what was interesting, I did not put in living with diabetes. Something resonated inside me that, you know, there's more to this. At that time, I lost my sight in my left eye. Uh, the doctor said, listen, you're going to lose your sight in probably a year. I had nerve damage because it was, it was in the advanced stages because mm -hmm. I ignored the symptoms for so long. Uh, my, I had nerve damage in my hands and feet. They said, you know what, you're going to lose some, you have some fingers and some toes. Uh, and it was just so ordinary. And, and what was fascinating, that part of me sort of accepted the fact that I was going to be diabetic one day. Because, you know, in the Black community, we sweetened diabetes. You know, mm -hmm. say, oh, you got a little sugar. The sugar, yeah. Right. What hit me was when the doctor said, you're going to be on medicine the rest of your life. And I said, whoa, 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 man, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> you know that? And, you know, losing my sight, I started looking at it and real, realizing that, you know, diabetes is the number one cause of blindness, number one cause of non-trauma limb amputation, number one cause of leading a heart disease. So it's the foundation for all of these other diseases. And so I met these doctors, a group called PCRM, Physician Committee for Responsible Medicine. One of the doctors treated Bill Clinton for his heart disease. Mm -hmm. And I called him up. I went to five doctors in New York first. They all said, your diabetes is hereditary. That is nothing you could do about it. It is what it is, basically. And uh, I called up the doctor in Ohio, Dr. Esselton. And I said, my name is Eric Adams. I'm told I'm diabetic. I'm losing my sight. And I, you know, I'm reading some of the stuff that you have online and I want to know if I could come see you. And he said, you know, come fly down to see me. I flew down to see him. He told me it's your food. And this was mm -hmm. just so beyond my scope. And he said, if you go to a whole food plant-based diet, you can reverse your diabetes. I returned to the city, cleaned out my cupboards, threw out all the food and, and don't let anybody fool you. The rumor about cops liking donuts is true. <laughs> <laughs> And I threw out all that food and started from scratch. And it was just, it was such a significant period in my life. But three weeks after 
changing my diet, my vision cleared up. Three weeks. Three weeks. My ophthalmologist was blown away. Three months after my A1C went from a 17 to a 5.7, my ulcer went away, my blood pressure normalized, my cholesterol went from a 217 down to a 57. Wow. A complete reversal, you know, and I, I lost 35 pounds. I no longer had a six pack, six pack. I had a case. My body was tight. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom at 80 years old that started the journey. She saw me last year. She called me up. She said, son, I'm reading all this stuff about yeah. what you're doing on healthcare. I want to try. I'm tired of, you know, these pills. She went whole food plant-based two months after she was taken off her insulin. Two months. And how many years has she been on insulin at that point? Seven years. Seven years. Fifteen years on metformin and other drugs. You know, all of those drugs that she was taking. No drugs. No drugs. Only food. That's the power mm. of food. It was never my DNA. It was my dinner. Mm, I like that. <laughs> you know, and and so this has started into a movement. Uh, last week, last Friday, I was in Washington, D.C., speaking to a thousand healthcare professionals. I have a prof- I have a program at Bellevue Hospital, the first of its kind in the country. Bellevue is the oldest hospital hospital in America. And I have a program at Bellevue Hospital, the first disease reversal program at Bellevue. We have 200 people who are enrolled, 600 people on a waiting list. Preliminary reports are showing how people are either decreasing their medicine or getting off their medicine altogether. We want to start uh, uh, health ministries in New York City so that um, our churches can now engage in real healthy eating. Only faith-based institutions that do deals with healthy eating is are the seven-day adventists. They do it, but they don't follow it. Mm-hmm. You know, food is killing us. And let me tell you what's really powerful about this whole food conversation. As I started to dig into it, it's amazing. The most intellectual, intelligent Black people I know, you want to see them act like buffoons? <laughs> Start talking about taking away that food. <laughs> this is this is true. What? This is true. You know, all then that, we start all rationalizing. That, oh, it's only a little bit. I only had a little, you know. That intellect goes out the mm-hmm. window. But as you dig into it, the real, real Willie Lynch letter is the recipes. The slave master forced our ancestors to eat food to survive. Our ancestors must be saying, Negroes, what's wrong with y'all? <laughs> you know? <laughs> they forced us to eat that so that we can make a way for you. Our diet is a slave diet. Ham hocks and neck bones and all that great stuff. Pig feed and, and, and that's, that's a slave diet. Mm-hmm. So they said the, the slave master must be saying to himself, we don't have to worry about Ken Thompson being the first African-American district attorney. He's going to be dead at 50 years old. Wow. We don't have to worry about Eric Adams being the first African-American to be the borough president of Brooklyn. He's going to be blind. You know, we, we don't have to worry about Jesse Jackson. Yeah, he survived the assassin bullet on the ledge with Dr. King. But you know what? He's going to eat food that we know he's going to get Parkinson's disease for. Disease after disease after disease. You don't get Alzheimer's dementia because you're older. You get it because your arteries are getting clogged in your brain. The same arteries that clog your heart and clogs your brain and it causes dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, we don't get uh, kidney failure doesn't run in the black community. No, fried chicken runs in the black community. <laughs> it's a very serious thing, but, uh, but just the way you frame that. That's, yeah. that's what I'm you know, doctors be telling me, well, you know what, your, your kidneys are, are not doing well, but it runs in your community. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it doesn't run in our community. In Brownsville, you have junk food. In Park Slope, you have whole food. 
And we're feeding our babies food, not only so they can start a, a, a legacy of eating bad, but that we know they're going to feed the healthcare crisis. You know, the number one killer of cardiologists is heart disease. I, I read that headline somewhere <laughs> and I thought it was clickbait. I thought it was fake. That's what I'm saying. People are dying. Our hospitals, our medical schools are not teaching nutrition. Only they do one, only a quarter of the medical schools in this country, a quarter teach one class on nutrition. They teach you how to uh, do pain management. The pharmaceutical companies have hijacked our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. The real drug dealers are not the guys on corner with blue jeans. It's the three-piece blue suit wearing pharmaceutical industries that are putting these drugs inside our community. And food is like crack. You take a crackhead and take his crack away from him, and then you take an average Harvard grad intellectual black man mm -hmm. and take his fried food away from him, <laughs> I challenge you to tell me who's a crackhead. <laughs> you know, that first week, that first week, I was dreaming about pork chops. Yeah, and that's anybody who, who has done any of these types of things, I mean, I... I did the vegan thing for about 60 days um, <laughs> and had to figure out what worked for me. Right, but right. that first couple of weeks what? with just whole food, plant-based, and I'm not even someone who was eating that unhealthy right, before. Right, I wasn't right. eating the fried foods and stuff before, right. but just the reduction that you don't think about in sugar, all these other things, <laughs> the headaches and the irritability and the, the cravings. Like, it, it is serious. I'm, it's I'm, like I'm detox. You, you got, and that's why I need my churches because mm -hmm. you, you need emotional support. Yeah. You're not, you're not, there are three types of uh, people, I believe. Mm -hmm. You're the type A, like me. Just give me my assignment. Yeah. Then you have type B. They want to do better, but they're inundated with all of this information. And, you know, there's no real support because, because behavioral science must be part of our health care. Because if you know you should not be smoking a cigarette because you have early signs of lung issue and you still smoke it, that's a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. We self-meditate ourselves. Yeah. And then it's the type that's going to say, man, listen, man, I'm going to die anyway. Just mm -hmm. give me, you know. But the the type B and, and, and A, we need to give them some systems to support a healthy eating. And so I had a good friend who uh, she was, she has a, 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 a very su successful business, a multi-million dollar business, sister, good people. And she was having seizures. She was waking out on the street, waking up in hospitals and precincts. She was going to close up her business. And she says that, you know, I just can't do this anymore. She was going to move back to her hometown and just put her, put her shingles up. And I said, listen, do me a favor. Not a doctor, but just try to go whole food, plant-based for three months. She She's now... Two and a half years in, never had another seizure. That's amazing. It's the food. This high, high, high cases of sisters with breast cancer, food. Prostate cancer, food. Um, number one killer of black women in America is heart disease. Mm -hmm. It's reversible without medicine and without surgery. But what's interesting is what you've said, because I've had the same experience. Like my family history, uh, thankfully, our, our mother has made different choices um, and is in is in great health because she saw what it did to my grandmother, and, mm. you know, my great grandmother or what have you. But I'll never forget the, you know, the first time when I got to a certain age where, you know, you had to start thinking about your blood pressure and all those things. And I filled out that family history. Mm. And I've spoken about it on the, on the show. My A1C when they took it was uh, a little a little high. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing they said to me was, "This runs in your family." That was the first thing they said. Right, right. Now, thankfully, I was at an office that they said that, but they followed it up with, let's get you to a nutritionist. This is what we want you to do. This is what you need to eliminate. And I was able to rectify that. But 
a lot of people just hear it runs in my family. Without Without and that's the excuse we give when we're on dialysis, when right. we're taking insulin, right. all these other things are happening. When my, my mother had it, my grandmother died from it. You know, we, we believe it. We, we do. Believe it. We, we, we had one man that called, I saw his daughter the other mm-hmm. day. Uh, he had 75% uh, kidney failure. Uh, they said, listen, you're going to eventually have to go on dialysis and a host of other things. He decided to go whole food plant-based. He has the same doctor that I have, Dr. Danea, and reversed his condition. I don't just dialysis, 75% kitten function, just completely reversed his, his condition. 90 years old. Wow. The body wants to heal. And every time the body tries to heal, we... Uh, injured it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. It's the food. And I, I, what I must do, and that's part of the legacy, I, want, I thought law enforcement was going to be my legacy through 100 Blacks and law enforcement. But my legacy is going to be two places. Number one is going to be health. We're going to change. We're going to start a whole new, new generation. Our mothers and grandmothers are going to learn how, because food has to look good, it has to be good for you, but you know what? It has to taste good. Right. And I, I'm doing a book where we're going to show good meals that you can cook, because it's about how do you use your uh, cultural norms and have the food taste like what you're used to? And how do you take some of the things out of your diet? Like our mothers um, cook fried chicken. Mom used to cook fried chicken all the time. That smoke that smelled good that mom was standing in front of, it's a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. It causes cancer. (laughs) I mean, this is like, you know, and we don't even realize that all these years we're growing up. So, of course, you eat a hamburger on Monday, you're not going to have colon cancer on Tuesday. But it's the lifestyle that you do for 50 years. So what I'm going to do around... uh, Healthcare is really revolutionary. People are going to come from all over the globe to study what I'm doing in healthcare. And those those healthcare professionals in Washington, they gave me an award because of what I'm doing to push this conversation forward. That's that's one. Two, I'm going to change education in this in this country. Dr. Ferguson uh, from Harvard University, a brother, came up with his uh, what he called BK Basics. Uh, the first 90 days is so crucial for children. A child's brain grows 80% between the ages of zero to three. Mm-hmm. 80% of his, of his brain growth. Yet, we don't formally have context with a child to start education until they're three. Right. 3K or pre-K. Uh, 3K for three years old, 4, 4K, 4, four years old is, um, is, is pre-K. By the time our babies get in school, they're so far behind mm-hmm. because we blew the window of when your brain is really grown. We have them sitting down in front of the TV, watching TV instead of empowering parents because parents are not doing it because they want to harm their children. No one is teaching parents how to be parents. Yes. And how do you participate in the development of your child's brain? So by the time he starts 3K or pre-K, he's ready. Why are we having children mandatory to start school when they're five years old, when there's no science attached to it? Why are we having children take two months off during the school year following the agrarian calendar? They're not going picking corn anymore. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We're we're doing a lot because of habit, not based on the science. Mm -hmm. We have to start doing things based on the science. And when you do things based on the science, you're going to get the results. So I'm going to change the game of education. Let me tell you the biggest problem I'm having. I have to dumb down my rap because people hear me with their eyes and not their ears. And they basically say, sometimes I sit down with reporters and I explain the things I want to do with this city. They say, well, if you're not, if you're saying that this can be done, Eric, why aren't the other candidates saying that? Let me translate that. Why are the white candidates are not exactly. saying that? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to change New York. I'm going to change in America. 
<laughs> and that's scary to folks. You had this bald-headed black guy that was the first chair of color to be Homeland Security, first chair of color to chair racing and gaming, second black senator in the senatorial district, first African-American uh, to be the borough president of Brooklyn, graduated the highest of my class uh, in the police, police academy. If you were to take my credentials and put it on the credentials of everybody else who's running, they would be all saying that this should be our next mayor. Overwhelming number of CEOs in America are white males, six ones of, of age. Uh, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell talks about in Blink how we have this perception yes. of what people ought to be and how they're supposed to be. I don't fit the description of who they believe should be the mayor of the city of New York. And then you have brothers and sisters that don't like themselves look at me and I look like them so they can't like me in the same time. And they don't think it's possible. They think white ice is colder. And so Eric can't make it happen. You can't do this. You can't be mayor. Listen to the indicators. When you run for mayor, there are things that they look at to see how success successful you are. The biggest stick on black candidates is that, listen, you guys can't raise money. You can't raise enough money to run citywide. Every six months, they look at how much money you raise. Each six months, I've outraised the entire field. I raised two, close to $2.3 million. No one else has raised as much money that I have raised. And not only have I raised more than everyone else, when they look at the list of my donors, they see donors from all over the city. I have more Caribbean, African-Americans, Uzbekistans, mm -hmm. Kore Koreans, Chinese, all of these different groups all over the city say that, you know what, if we have a chance, the chance is going to come through Eric Adams. And people are scared as hell of a of a mayor race with Eric Adams. They're going to throw everything at me, <laughs> you know that? And they're going to say, we can't let this guy get it. They can do what they want. Ancestors know what's best. So in a perfect <laughs> world, what do the next two years look like as you finish out your term as borough president? And, and continue on this path <laughs> to the mayor's office. We're going to continue the health stuff that we're mm -hmm. doing. We're going to really push. I want every child in Brooklyn to uh, be able to meditate in the beginning of their class day. Uh, a lot of these children are coming to classroom. They're broken in many pieces. Mm -hmm. We're trying to tell them, learn how to read, write, and multiply and divide. They divide it. You know, you don't think those children in Brownsville that went through the shooting in that community at old times there is not uh, divided. The science says that meditation can really silence some of the trauma and the PTSD that these babies are experiencing. We want to push that more in our school. We want to do more stuff around healthy food. We want to continue to have our children have the technology they need in school. I put $125 million in our school of upgrading te the technology. We want to encourage Black folks to be part of the urban garden movement, multi-billion dollar industry that we're being left behind. How do you grow food through uh, hydroponics inside a classroom. We want to push the, uh, the envelope and make the borough a place that the city can look at to see how do we start turning the corner on uh, technology. We want to make the city a smarter city using AI, using smart city technology. I've been meeting with folks from Microsoft to Google and other, you know, thinkers in this space to how do we run the city a better way. We want to expand our telemedicine um, application. You can, you, there's no reason our families are sitting in emergency rooms all the time when the technology is there. There's no reason our elders have to travel uh, to locations when they can get their services right. The technology allows someone to go right, speak to a doctor. They can, they can monitor their vital signs and without having to go through the hardship of doing so. So we want the city to 
should be a smarter city. If the city is smarter, we are going to benefit from the intelligence that comes from an efficient government. And we're going to continue to just push the envelope and get folks ready for 2021. And 2021, the 21st century, need a 21st century mayor in 2021. So to those who are still trying to figure barrel president, uh, <laughs> president Eric Adams out, where can they follow you online, follow what you have going on, your strategies, your positioning, your platform? Our website is, if you Google um, our website, uh, will come up to keep abreast. You could mm-hmm. also hit me on tw- Twitter, BP Eric Adams. Uh, our Twitter account and Eric for New York's NYC is our uh, political account because you can't mix the two. Sure. One has to be... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, city and one has to be political. And you can, you know, just come out and, and, and hang out. And also, any of your listeners that that are interested in um, what, you know, I did for my mother and mm-hmm. what I'm doing for others, they can, you know, shoot me a text on my phone, uh, 917-335-3179, and just say health, H-E-A-L-T-H, and I'll shoot them over because so many people have asked me. Mm-hmm. I put it in one text and I ju- I'll just shoot it off to them and just keep them abreast on what we're doing around health. You have people texting things that are not keywords, not the keyword health. I, you love, know. I love people. I never get enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a people junkie. And so, you know, my staff, they go crazy when I'm sending an audience of 3,000 people giving my cell number. They're like, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know what? If you don't love people, don't get in this business. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, I will say in the spirit of full disclosure, when we talked about having a politician on the show. I said, um... <laughs> Let's, this show is about authenticity, so I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. That's funny. <laughs> and we know you had a busy day. You're, you're yeah, out there. Yeah. There's a reason you're in the lead mm. um, in terms of fundraising. You're shaking the trees, getting getting out there. We know you had other obligations today, so we appreciate you coming yeah, and having yes. a long conversation yes, about yeah, your story. How long we were talking? I mean, yeah. I've been educated on a number of things. We've been we've been talking. Wow, about an hour and a half. Wow, yes, wow, yeah. wow, wow. Time flies okay. when you have a good when you're having a good discussion. Yeah, no, so mm-hmm. true, so true. I, I think that people really underestimate the lubricating value mm-hmm. of a good conversation and laughter. Sure, you know, we we don't we don't laugh enough. We don't enjoy life enough. We worry about what has happened, mm-hmm. and we worry about what is going to happen. Let's start living in the present. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm going to be following this. I'm officially a New Jersey resident. <laughs> Where? Um, uh, you want me to say what? No, I'm only kidding. I live in West New York, Hudson okay. County. Um, nice, nice. But I, I am, I work in the city, and clearly we have vested interests here. So yes. I'm going to be following this very closely. Thank you for sure. Thank you. And we're going to talk again. Yes. Because when you win, where are you coming back? Oh, uh, right here. Okay, this, got it. This, you know. this is my spin side. <laughs> exactly. So we're going to make it happen. Until then, to our <laughs> listeners, especially New Yorkers, uh, please follow what Borough President Ad- Ad- Adams is doing, and to those of you who are interested interested in changing your health and the way that you live and your lifestyle. This is information that we need as a people. Um, it starts with a mindset change and takes a level of discipline, but Borough President Adams is in a living example of what is possible. So take him up on his offer if you want to learn more about that. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Comment, especially if you have interests that you want to get to him as he's uh, moving through this process. You can go ahead and comment on the December 26er IG page or send us a message at info at December26er.com and we'll make sure that your voice is heard as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was recorded at QNYC and was produced by Demarcus Adisa. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 